This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, Jim Hightower, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, The Rachel Maddow Show, and The Matthew Filipovic Show. With millions unemployed, wage stagnation for those lucky enough to have jobs, and an economy continuing to falter, it seems like a good time to call for more suffering, right? If you answered no, you might not be ready for the media big leagues, like NBC Meet the Press host David Gregory, who told Obama advisor David Axelrod on January 29th, If you look at how dire the fiscal situation is in this country, we just came off a debt debacle this past summer. Alan Simpson responding to the State of the Union said, where's the guts, where's the hard stuff, where's the beef? Where are the hard choices that Americans are going to have to make? What are Americans going to have to do with less of if this president gets re-election? Axelrod, to his credit, noted that plenty of people were hurting. But Gregory wasn't impressed. The NBC anchors spoke almost disdainfully of modest measures taken to reduce the pain. Quote, wait a second, there was a stimulus plan, there was a new health care entitlement, but there was nothing dealing with the big drivers of the day, close quote. By that he meant entitlements. He chided the White House for not following its own debt commission recommendations, which called for cutting Social Security and Medicare benefits. It's hard to overstate how committed elite media are to austerity as the fix to our current economic problems. Though economists like Paul Krugman and Dean Baker disagree, and the public actually think the hard stuff would be in cutting, say, the military, this doesn't get through to David Gregory, who thinks Social Security, a program with trillions in assets, is one of the big drivers of the debt. As an old country saying puts it, money is like manure. It does no good unless you spread it around. Yet, America's corporate and political leaders have intentionally been shoveling wealth into an ever bigger pile for those at the top. They've gotten away with this by lying to the great majority, which has seen its share of America's prosperity steadily disappearing. Yes, they've told us the rich are getting richer, but that's just the natural workings of the new global economy in which financial elites are rewarded for their exceptional talents, innovation, and bold risk-taking. Horse duties. The massive redistribution of America's wealth from the many to the few is happening because the rich and their political puppets have rigged the system. Years of subsidized offshoring and downsizing, gutting labor rights, monkey-wrenching the tax code, legalizing financial finagling, dismantling social programs, increasing the political dominance of corporate cash. These and other self-serving acts of the moneyed powers have created the conveyor belt that's moving our wealth from the grassroots to the penthouses. Not since the Gilded Age, which preceded and precipitated the Great Depression, have so few amassed so much of our nation's riches. Having learned nothing from 1929's devastating crash, nor from their own bank failures in 2008 that crushed our economy, the wealthiest of the wealthy fully intend to keep taking more for themselves at our expense. 
This is Jim Hightower saying, Now, however, the people are on to their lies. In an October poll, two-thirds of Americans support increased taxes on millionaires, an end to corporate tax subsidies, and policies to more evenly distribute the wealth we all help create. This rising egalitarianism shows the true American character and is changing our politics for the better. Dr. David Graeber, he is a uh, teacher at the University of London, an anthropologist and author of Debt, the First 5,000 Years. Uh, welcome to the program, Doctor. Well, thanks for having me. Let's, let, let's just start with uh, the, w w the concept of debt. Uh, because I think, mm -hmm. you know, we all have a perception that we know what it is, and particularly in this country, and I think probably perhaps more so uh, now uh, across the globe, there, we all have this sort of specific notion of that it's a, it's a moral obligation, and then, but it's also uh, to do with finance, and we, we, things get conflated, and um, I think uh, the most important thing about your book is to really, that it, that it attempts to unwind these strands of these sort of braided notions uh, that mm -hmm. come together in debt. I explain to us, what, what is debt? Well, um, the conclusion I finally came to in writing the book is that what a debt is, it's a promise. It's no, it has no greater moral standing or less moral standing than any other promise you might make. It's a very peculiar type of promise because it's been made in personal and transferable. That is to say... Well, if I promise to do something to you, you can't really pass that promise to someone else. Now, so then I ask, well, what is it that makes a, a debt a promise that's transferable? What, um, how is that possible? And historically, it seems to be two factors, the confluence of mass and violence. Um, on the one hand, you can exactly quantify what's required. On the other hand, you have some sort of structure in place to force people into going along with it. Um, and debt in the sense that we would recognize it, money in the sense that we recognize it, really is more a product of relations of violence, of war, of coercion, than it is of what we usually think of as, as peaceful trade. And so, in other words, um, uh, we have a situation where we, we all know the concept of debt as in, like, you know, our promise, um, you know, I promise to meet you at 5 o'clock, uh, yeah. uh, and, and that's not something that you could uh, transfer to someone else. It has no value. Yeah, I can't uh, give you somebody else's promise to meet me. Um, and, and the other thing is it's renegotiable. If something comes up, I promise to meet you at 5 o'clock and um, you know, there's a general strike, the trains aren't running, um, something, you, know, you can always renegotiate a promise. Debts, because they become impersonal, because they get corrupted by mathematics, um, you can't um, or the idea is that you really ought not to do so. And that has tremendous effects because it means that a promise that's measured in money, um, a debt, tends to get treated as totally different and somehow morally higher than a promise that you make to someone you love or a promise that a politician makes to the people of the country who elected them. 
Now, I, I want to talk about that, that sort of the, the moral ascendancy of a financial debt, even over one of, uh, you know, that p people make arrangements with each other. I mean, people make promises all the time. I promise to, um, to uh, love you for the rest of your life and to be your husband and wife, and we have divorces all the time. Um, and those promises are explicitly sacred. You know, they're sacred vows, except people break them. And, and so, wait, now, in, you know, from an anthropological perspective, do we know what, which preceded, I mean, what was the impetus of this? Because, in other words, um, uh, you, you talk about how, uh, in the book, how, um, uh, and like you said, a debt uh, becomes sort of like the, uh, the nexus of math and political violence, violence in some way. What, Mm -hmm. What preceded which? In other words, did, was it was mm -hmm. it the idea of like uh, was it people who were owed stuff want to be able to enforce it? So we need to change uh, debt into something that can be calculable. Well, this is a really interesting question, and it's really the question of how does money come about? We were all taught this story. You know, once upon a time there was barter, and people used to sit around saying, "Tell you what, I'll give you twenty chickens for that cow." You know, eventually this becomes inconvenient. They have to invent money. Um, in fact, as any anthropologist can tell you, this is nonsense. There's, we've never managed to find a society anywhere in which you know, everyday transactions took that form, uh, and the reason is obvious. The whole barter myth is based on you know what an economist would call the spot trade. Um, I give you this, you give me that, we walk away. Um, if you're talking about the Neolithic village somewhere, these people are your neighbors, right? So, you know, if uh, I say, I'll give you 20 chickens for that cow, I mean, even imagine this happens. Um, and you know, the need chickens right now, according to economists, the deal is off. In fact, you're his neighbor. You know, it's great to have your neighbor in your debt. Um, so you'd say, no, no, come on, take the cow, it's on me, don't even think about it, and now he owes you one. So you have... This is what you find. You find in ordinary societies about money, um, everybody has sort of debts to everybody else, and they're, they're not exactly quantified. There's no reason to do so. So the question is, you know, how do you get from that to the point where you can say 27 of these equals five of those, which is what you get money, this sort of exact uh, measurement of debt. Now, what seems to be the case is that it happens exactly in situations where somebody is actually committed violence. Um, Say some people get in a fight and somebody caught off. Often law codes and society, even societies about markets will have very detailed lists of like, you know, if somebody damages someone's eye, that's 27 heifers. If somebody damages someone's ear, that's 32, and so forth and so on. Um, and that's exactly the kind of situation where you do want to figure out, oh, well, first of all, people are at least willing to compromise and be generous with one another. It's like, no, I demand 32 heifers or this means war, right? Uh, and second of all, where they might not have heifers, so you have to substitute something else. So, in fact, that's where money seems to emerge as this way of measuring debts that you owe for violence, so compensation, fines, things like that. And so, so, so it uh, starts out. So I'm sorry. So uh, I just I want to make this clear because you know we have this perception of like you know this debt, this whole notion of debt society, and the, the people getting into debt is a somewhat recent phenomena that is destroying and it is somehow immoral. Uh, there's some type of moral connotations about creating debt. Oh, we shouldn't be in debt. Yeah. <laughs> but but in fact, uh, debt even preceded the notion of money. Absolutely, yes. I mean, a sense of having some kind of moral obligation, owing somebody something, now that goes way back. The idea that you can exactly figure out how much and that you can pay it off. In fact, in a lot of societies, 
that is considered the essence of morality. It's only right that everybody should owe each other something. So that, for example, this is true whether in African societies, uh, many African societies, or even in medieval England, um, it was considered wrong to ha cancel out the debts. Because then you're saying, like, well, nobody really needs each other or wants to have anything to do with each other. So if somebody gives you a present, you want to give something back, you want to give something a little bit more valuable or a little bit less valuable than what they gave you. Because if you give something exactly the same, you're saying, I don't even see you anymore. Will you also just tell us about the Wizard of Oz? Uh, because oh, I had yes. never heard this before, and it was fascinating. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, I can't wait to sit down with my daughter and watch the movie again. But, but, but tell us mm -hmm. about the Wizard of Oz as a metaphor, and um, to the extent that it was actually meant in this fashion. Well, nobody's been able to prove it conclusively, but it's, it's so suggestive. And, and it seems that even by the time they put on the play of Wizard of Oz, which was in 1901, you know, a year after the book came out, they, people thought that this was what it was about. Um, essentially, at that time, one of the big political struggles was over the nature of money, whether they had a gold standard at that point. And a lot of um, it was causing a sort of tight money policies, which was causing debt crises uh, to affect farmers who were being foreclosed on. And the farmers were trying to run a populist candidate to make what they called bimetallism, let's create a silver standard because there's a lot of silver mines cropping up at the time. It would make for a cheaper money policies. Um, so there were all these debates about monetary policy. And the book appears to be a giant metaphor for the William Jennings Bryan um, populist silver campaign. Because, you know, what do you get? You get um, this woman, Dorothy, um, whose name is suspiciously similar to Theodore Roosevelt, Dorothy Theodore, um, who's a part of this farm uh, family that's swept away by a tornado. She gets translated, you know, transported to the land of Oz, O-Z, which is, of course, the word for ounce. Um, she's on the yellow brick road, which is like gold bars, right, um, toward the Emerald City, which is green. Uh, and the only way out is it's, they change it to ruby slippers in the movie, but it's silver slippers because they're her only escape. And along the way, she meets, first she meets the scarecrow, and the scarecrow actually represents the farmers who have no brains because they're always getting these bad debt contracts and getting foreclosed on. Then she meets the tin woodsman, who's like the industrial proletariat who has no heart because he won't act in solidarity with the farmers because they kept trying to get the Northeast proletariat to vote for the populist candidate. Then he meets the cowardly lion or the political class who have no courage because they can't face up to the East Coast and West Coast bankers who are, in fact, the wicked witch of the East and the West. And you get the idea, so forth yeah. and so on. The entire thing is this gigantic monetary allegory. And what is it that what we learn when uh, the Wizard of Oz is exposed? Pardon me? What do we learn when the Wizard of Oz is exposed at that point? Ah, that the whole money system is just flim flam. It's all smoke and mirrors. Um, it's all created by, you know, these sort of phony elites. Um, and the Federal Reserve didn't exist at that time. But, you know, the local equivalents, it's all kind of a scam where they just make up money and, and, and you believe it. Then I saw her face Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast, where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things, like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. 
Hi, I'm John Oliver. And even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in moments of clarity. Free at LeeCamp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. I'm a Guess who President Obama is considering naming to be the new chief of the World Bank? Larry Summers. That means President Obama has not learned a damn thing. And it, there's no change. There's no progressive awakening. That all the talk that's more progressive now during the campaign is just talk. Larry Summers is the engineer of the deregulation on the Democratic side of the financial industry. So when he was uh, in the Clinton administration, he's the one that pushed that administration to deregulate the financial industry, which turned into be a total and utter disaster. That's what caused the collapse in 07 and 08 of the financial industry. President Obama made a tremendous mistake by taking Larry Summers as his top economic advisor in the White House. Larry Summers, unsurprisingly, after getting paid millions upon millions of dollars for part-time work and consulting and speeches by the financial industry, 5.2 million alone in one year, and that doesn't even count as speeches, he shockingly came into the Obama administration and said, hey, you know what? You shouldn't lay a glove on the banks. You should let them keep doing business exactly as they have even though that's what caused the collapse. No, 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 oh, just you know, tweak around the edges, no financial transaction tax, no regulation of derivatives, no Glass-Steagall, don't touch the big banks. And President Obama agreed with him, which I think was a central mistake in economic matters. And now there was all this talk about, well, Larry Summers isn't in the administration anymore, and a lot of the conservatives, Peter Orzag, et cetera, Rahm Emanuel, have left the administration, so maybe President Obama's turned a new leaf. <laughs> That's a good one. As we showed you, his new chief of staff, Jack Lew, also a former banker, also made millions, some of which came after the bailouts, even though his division lost billions of dollars as Citigroup. Also a guy who thinks we shouldn't touch the banks at all, that, it's, that we don't have to do any new regulation, that deregulation wasn't the problem in the first place. That's his new chief of staff. And now, if he appoints as two well-placed sources are claiming, puts uh, Larry Summers at the World Bank, it means President Obama isn't making a mistake in terms of like, oh, golly gee, he wants to be progressive on these financial matters. He just doesn't know how. No, he is pro-establishment. He is pro-conservative. He is pro-banks. You don't appoint Larry Summers again <laughs> to an, another enormously important position unless you agree with Larry Summers. I'm tired of the excuses. Go ahead, Obama supporters. Make sorry-ass excuses for this, too.
Another call for more pain comes in Neil Ferguson's January 23rd Newsweek column, where he explains that while technocratic experts have the painful answers to our economic questions, by which he means more austerity, always more austerity, there's a catch. Those nerdy experts aren't always great at selling the policy. So how to do that? Quote, People can tolerate job losses, spending cuts, and tax hikes if they believe that a payoff will come in the foreseeable future. How to persuade them of that? The only way is through political leadership. Close quote. Ferguson concludes that Americans, quote, need to be convinced to swallow the bitter medicine that competent government sometimes prescribes. In austerity-stricken Europe, too, the populists are waiting in the wings, ready to deliver rabble-rousing rants. Perhaps 2012 will turn out to be their year after all, close quote. The problem with Ferguson's preferred austerity policies is not that they require sacrifices. It's that they don't work. The decisions to make people in Europe swallow the bitter medicine of austerity have actually made the situation there worse. As a recent IMF report acknowledges, the bitter medicine prescribed by the conservative-led government in Ferguson's native Britain has recently succeeded in making the economic crisis there worse than the Great Depression. Is that the big payoff a true leader would have persuaded them to believe in? Ferguson is himself an expert. His bio notes he's a professor of history at Harvard, a senior research fellow at Oxford University, and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. That's always the problem with technocratic government. You have to be careful which experts you listen to. Why did I listen to that man? Why did I listen to the nature of his plan? And when he talked, I should have walked, I should have walked, I should have ran. Why did I listen to that man? I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 dollars a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Obama must okay that Keystone XL pipeline from Canada to the Gulf Coast, bark the corporatists in Congress, because the Exxons and Chevrons need a way to get all that Canadian tar sands oil to their Texas refineries. That'll increase the supply of gasoline and lower the price at the pump. It's economics 101, bucko. Really? Well, consider this complicating fact. Rather than shipping an abundance of gasoline to our gas stations, Big Oil has quietly been siphoning oceans of fuel from their U.S. refineries, shipping it to Asia, Europe, and Latin America. Last year, for the first time ever, fuel became the top export of the United States. The big refineries shipped 117 million gallons of gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel per day out of our country. Suddenly, fuel exports are bigger in dollar value than the foreign sales of American aircraft, agriculture, or any other product. Commuters, truckers, farmers, airlines, and others who are dependent on these fuels have been soaked in the past year by gasoline pump prices that have averaged $3.52 a gallon, a record high. 
This price shock has given Big Oil's political puppets an excuse to yap ceaselessly about the urgent need to build that pipeline. The environment be damned is their cry, full speed ahead to increase supply. These ranters don't mention, shh, the giant refiners' control and manipulation of our gasoline supply for their own fun and profit. While the refiners refuse to reveal how much they profit from exporting fuel, the more they send overseas, the less there is here at home, allowing them to jack up our prices. No surprise, then, that the big five gasoline makers enjoyed record profits in 2011. This is Jim Hightower saying, rather than ripping apart our environment to serve these finaglers, America urgently needs a full conversion to alternative fuels. The Onion Radio News. Exxon Mobil swears it's going to start taxes early this year. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Hoping to avoid the last-minute scramble it goes through every year, the Exxon Mobil Corporation announced today that it has made a solemn promise to get moving on taxes early. Chairman and CEO Lee R. Raymond. We're going to have to start sorting through those receipts from the Malaysian production facilities the first weekend we have time. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to get it done ahead of time for a change so we could get our refund before everyone else? Raymond added that he doesn't want to find himself driving around at 10 p.m. looking for a gas station or convenience store with a copy machine like he did last year or the year before. Noel Redland for the Onion Radio News. For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. Some good news today. Good-ish news, at least. Uh, look, this chart was posted today on our blog by the great and good Steve Bennon, who now blogs here. Steve's arrival as the latest addition to the Rachel Maddow Show staff is my own personal Christmas in January. It's very, very exciting. Uh, but as you can see from Steve Bennon's chart here, the good news, the economy is growing a little. We are on the positive side of zero. That's what that last bar on the right means. Uh, back here, back that part, at the end of 2008, start of 2009, that's when Wall Street blew up. And it seriously seemed like the world might too. It was about that time, uh, three years ago, January 2009, as the wave of that economic disaster was crashing down on us, that Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur of Ohio got up on the floor of Congress and said something that will be in the history books forever. When the story is written of how America survived the worst economic disaster to befall us since the Great Depression, what Marcy Kaptur said in Congress that January 15th, 2009, will be part of the history as it is told. So why should any American citizen be kicked out of their homes in this cold weather in Ohio? It's going to be 10, 20 below zero. Don't leave your home. Because you know what? When those companies say they have your mortgage, unless you have a lawyer that can put his finger or her finger on that mortgage, you don't have that mortgage. And you're going to find they can't find the paper up there on Wall Street. 
So I say to the American people, you'll be squatters in your own homes. Don't you leave. In Ohio and Michigan and Indiana and Illinois and all these other places where our people are being treated like chattel. And this Congress is stymied. Stay in your homes. Don't you leave. Make the bastards at the banks drag you out by the heels. I mean, what Marcy Kaptur was saying that day was in part pure catharsis, right? But she was also making a quite sophisticated legal argument. They're not going to be able to find the paper down there on Wall Street. She was making that argument years ahead of almost everybody else in Washington. When those companies say they have your mortgage, unless you have a lawyer that can put his finger or her finger on that mortgage, you don't have that mortgage. And you're going to find they can't find the paper up there on Wall Street. Marcy Kaptur, it turns out, was right. In order to create their personal jargantaloid fortunes from trading other people's houses, Wall Street first had to devise a way to bundle zillions of mortgages together so they could bet on them and buy them and sell them in bulk. One house, that's a deal between you and your bank that can take months to finish up. 10,000 houses? That's something Wall Street can flip in a New York instant. But when Wall Street did that, when they created those bundles, they broke the link between your one house and the bank you borrowed money from to buy that house. And it turns out the implications of that one simple little fact are astounding. In January 2011, two years after Marcy Kaptur's speech that we just played, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled that the banks had no right to foreclose on two homes. The court decided those loans had been shuffled around so many times among so many investors that nobody knew who had the right to kick the homeowners out if they stopped paying. Financial blogger Felix Salmon looked at the case and wrote, quote, anybody who was foreclosed on in Massachusetts should now be phoning up their lawyer and trying to figure out if the foreclosure was illegal. If it was, then the borrower should be able to get their deed and their home back from the bank. So Marcy Kaptur was right three years ago. They can't take your house. If you look around, you'll see cases like the one in Massachusetts popping up everywhere. This month in Nevada, the state Supreme Court, considering the case of Andrew and Loretta Davis, who say their mortgage, too, does not legally belong to the bank that's trying to kick them out of that house. If they win, thousands of Nevada families will have reason to ask whether the banks had any right to kick them to the curb, too. And while we just got another sign that Marcy Kaptur uh, was right, this time it came from a different place. After years of federal prosecutors schnorfling around Wall Street trying to find some way to assign blame for the Wall Street disaster that ate the whole country's economy, President Obama announced this week that he is ready to look at what Wall Street did to Main Street as a potential crime. And tonight I'm asking my attorney general to create a special unit of federal prosecutors and leading state attorney general to expand our investigations into the abuse of lending and packaging of risky mortgages that led to the housing crisis. This new unit will hold accountable those who broke the law, speed assistance to homeowners, and help turn the page on an era of recklessness that hurt so many Americans. Today, Attorney General Eric Holder announced that he has a working group ready to go forward to do what the president is asking, to sort through what Wall Street did in betting on average Americans' homes, and to put the bankers on trial wherever the evidence warrants prosecution. We are now almost three years removed from Marcy Kaptur's plea to families to have confidence that the law will protect them even as the banks come to get them. A scene like this one, a foreclosed home, the family who used to live here gone God knows where, a scene like this is definitely tragic, it can be enraging, but is this also a crime scene, like a mugging or an assault? Could this also be a crime? This is my winter song to you The storm is coming soon The rolls are from the sea 
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7-8% to of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. They say we're buried for Just like a distant star I simply cannot hold New York Times columnist David Brooks, who's been called the bard of the 1% for his defense of the economic elite, is at it again, telling people not to worry about the concentration of wealth at the very top of the income scale. Brooks writes in his January 31st column that the claim that America is threatened by the financial elite who hogs society's resources is a distraction. Brooks argues, quote, the real social gap is between the top 20% and the lower 30%. The liberal members of the upper tribe latch on to this top 1% narrative because it excuses them from the central role they themselves are playing in driving inequality and unfairness. Well, Brooks's claim then is that inequality is really a matter of the top one-fifth, not the one percent. That's not what the Congressional Budget Office says. Their numbers say that it's true what you might call the upper middle class has done better than the middle class and poor over the past three decades or so. Their income has grown by 65 percent versus 40 percent for the middle class and only 18 percent for the poor. But over the same time period, the income of the richest 1% has soared by 275%. That's close to quadrupling. And while the share of income claimed by Brooks's upper tribe has stayed about the same since 1979, the poor and middle class have gotten substantially less, while the piece of the pie taken by that 1% has more than doubled in size. Turns out the real driver of inequality and unfairness is the financial elite who hogs society resources. This concept that the demonization of, of things, and this came up, I guess, with, um, uh, with um, uh, Newt Gingrich calling President Obama the food stamp president, and yeah. the, the ongoing sort of demonization of the unemployed in this country. We know that um, uh, for blacks, the unemployment rate is five, six, seven times higher you know, nationally uh, yeah. than it is for whites. The demonization of, of the unemployed, uh, the, we're seeing it in, in many states now. If you're getting unemployment insurance, uh, you gotta take a drug test or something, you know, right. these, these type of movements. Tell me about the roots of this and how, um, how there, there's this undercurrent of raciality. I'm not sure what right. the word is. Uh, for right. This. 
Sure. Well, you know, I mean, you have to understand the history of this. If you go back to the Great Depression, so now let's go back to the 30s or the 40s even, and you start to think about the way that in mid-century, beginning uh, earlier in the 30s and extending all the way really to the late 50s, um, government spending was viewed. It's very different than it is today. You know, it sounds as if to some people we've always had this argument that conservatives wanted small government and liberals wanted big government and that white folks in particular being more, you know, perhaps conservative in the South and elsewhere uh, wanted small government. But during the Depression, you will find it very hard to locate any white folks in history who were not themselves quite wealthy, who opposed government intervention in the job market or the housing market. They know if they were working class and white, which is what, you know, 95% of all white folks were at least, that, you know, state intervention, government spending, anti-poverty programs, government intervention in the so-called free market is what saved they, uh, you know, them and their families. So there was widespread support for those programs, and that doesn't really change until the late 60s and early 70s. Now, what happens between the 30s and the late 60s and early 70s? Well, very simply, for the first 25 to 30 years or so of those programs, those big government initiatives, the FHA loans, the VA loans, the GI Bill, jobs programs, etc., most of those programs were essentially <clears throat> off limits for anyone who wasn't white because when FDR signed them into law, he had been threatened by Southern uh, racist white senators, most of them in his own party, that they would not support the New Deal unless the provisions were written in such a way as to make it very difficult, if not impossible, for black folks to be able to participate. So for 30 years, big government was racialized as being for white folks. And so white folks didn't have to think to themselves, oh, I bet those people are going to abuse the programs because those people couldn't even get the programs. Beginning in the late 50s, early to mid 60s, because of the civil rights struggle, but also what was called the welfare rights movement and others, people of color fought and gained access to some of the same programs that white folks had already had access to. And it is precisely at that point where the public perception of social spending, the public perception of programs intended to help the have-nots and have-lessers becomes a perception of people of color being the ones getting help. It is precisely at that moment that public opinion begins to shift, and you begin to see white folks uh, turning against the very programs that one generation, two generations earlier, they knew were important and which they supported. And so uh, Martin Gillens, who wrote this great book many years ago, Why Americans Hate Welfare, documents in a, in a very academic but yet readable way that as soon as the media imagery of the poor and the so-called underclass came to be black and brown folks, that's when the public support for what, whatever was thought of as welfare changed. And I think today we have to understand the consequence of that, which is why I spend a lot of time on this in, in, uh, in, my, in the, my book that just came out, Dear White America. I talk about the way that, ironically, you have right now millions of white Americans who are facing foreclosure, millions of white Americans who don't have a job and are trying to get unemployment insurance, and now they are experiencing some of this demonization. You know, you've got presidential candidates running around bashing people for being out of work for so long as if somehow, you know, they're, they're purposely sitting around not wanting to work. And I'm sure for a lot of white folks, they're trying to figure, white working class struggling people, they're trying to figure out what they did wrong. Well, the answer is they didn't do anything wrong except be indifferent for the last 40 years as this 
narrative was spun that basically bashed the poor because the poor were seen as something other than white. And so now the irony is you got millions of white folks who need the same programs, need the same interventions, need the same care and concern that people of color have always needed but never received, and it's not there for them either. And I think those of us on the left need to make this connection very clear if we're going to push a, a, an economically populist agenda to understand that the reason that that isn't working right now or the reason that that isn't prevalent as it should be is because social spending, the whole notion of social welfare has been so thoroughly racialized over the last 40 years that it is preventing many white folks from acting on the basis of what would be in their own interest just because they're so sort of pro we've been so programmed to want to stay ahead of somebody else who we view as undeserving and if we don't get rid of that mentality we're all going down and so uh, i mean what so tactically how do we deal with that I mean, what, what is the pushback there where, without, I mean, do we simply just when we talk about poor people now, we only talk about white people? I mean, what, what, no, what, is, no. what is the tactical? No, no, no. I think I think we want to say very clearly we need to talk about when this shift happened and link it so people understand. You know, there's a reason that you associate government spending with racial transfer schemes because you were you were told to believe that. That's what politicians have been saying. That's what they've been playing upon for years. And you know, it's just like any advertising. It works. There are companies that spend hundreds of billions of dollars to convince you to buy their toilet paper, their toothpaste, their tennis shoes. And if we can be taught to buy consumer brands after seeing an advertisement 10, 11, 12 times, which is what the research on marketing says, then surely uh, we can be trained to buy into race and class stereotypes that we've had drummed into us not 10, 11, or 12 times, but for years and years, and for way more than 30 seconds at a clip, you know, the way commercials for, for consumer products are. So it's, it's not that we're bad people. It's not that we're racist and classist people at our core. It's that we have been given this image over and over to the point where sometimes it gets in the way of understanding how we have to have solidarity with people of color as white folks we do if we're going to be able to pull out of the kind of economic mess we're in. And, and what I'm afraid we usually do is sometimes we push the economic populist argument without attending to this racialized thing, whether it's Thomas Frank, you know, in his book, What's the Matter with Kansas? I think he very deftly but unfortunately skirts the issue of race uh, in, in why economic populism hasn't worked or hasn't caught on. I think a lot of authors have done that. Jim Hightower, who I have a ton of respect for, but yet at the same time, in his writing, he doesn't talk a whole lot about the way that race has been at the core of this propaganda. And I think unless we take it on head on and make the point that it's going to be very hard to get the kind of solidarity across racial lines that we need for working people to display in order to really change that system. Yeah, I mean, if people want an example of that, at least on the right, you know, pick any um, Rush Limbaugh uh, show from 2009-2010, and every single day it is about Obama's slush fund that he's giving to black people. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Glenn Beck, almost like a cartoon. Well, you know, Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh at that time during the health care debate, it was rather obvious, right? Glenn Beck goes on, I remember it was, it was late summer, I guess, of 09, and, you know, says on at least one occasion that I saw that the health care reform bill really wasn't about health care, that it was just the president's way of getting reparations for right. slavery for black people. I mean, why would you, that's a statement which intellectually makes no sense. Uh, I mean, what kind of reparations do you have to get sick first to get paid? That's just but the reality is, when you say it, it's a very brilliant political thing that you're saying, ah, see, he's doing it for those people. Remember, he's taking your money and he's giving it to them or he's giving it to the, 
to the to the quote unquote illegal you know immigrants, the undocumented Mexican. I mean, whatever you know. And and every single time these things are discussed, that is the kind of imagery that they play upon deliberately. And the research says it's the kind of thing we see. I mean, there's this brilliant study that was done of several countries in the in the Western industrialized world, and I I, I reference it in my book Colorblind, um, and maybe in Dear White America also. I can't recall, but the study found that the single biggest factor that differentiates the United States from all those Western industrial quote-unquote democracies that we like to compare ourselves to in terms of the size of the social safety nets here versus there, the main factor that limits safety nets here, according to that research, is the difference in this country versus those other countries in the perception that racial others, and especially black people in the case of the U.S., will take advantage of and abuse the programs. That actually goes further to explain opposition to social safety net spending here than any other factor, bigger than the history of the labor movement, bigger than you know, cultural conservatism, bigger than, than, than Protestant ethic, work ethic differences or whatever, that the actual perception of undeserving black folks taking advantage of the program, so to speak, is actually the single biggest factor in explaining why our safety nets are smaller. And again, the irony meaning that now millions of white Americans who need those safety nets don't have them and don't even realize why they don't. And that dovetails with uh, research that shows that people's aversion to taxes is a function that they are afraid the money that they pay in taxes is going to go to uh, help people who are, um, they perceive, lower than them on the economic or social strata, and not right. a function of they think they're going to be a millionaire someday. Um, exactly, and, and which is why in the 50s, when taxes were far higher, I mean, the, the, up, you know, the, the highest tax rate in 1957 was 91%. There were 18 tax brackets that were higher than anything we have now, and yet there was no widespread anti-tax revolt or anti-tax movement because folks felt like, well, I'm paying the taxes, but I'm the one, and people like me are the ones getting the services, mm -hmm. so that's okay. It's only when that perception changed uh, that all of a sudden the attitude changed. So when you say that we have a, uh, a, a, a racialist, I guess, culture, I, uh, maybe that's yeah. the wrong term, that, that's what you're referring to, that this notion of, of race is sort of so interwoven in our, our culture that it affects every sort of policy, or not every, but the vast majority of policies uh, and, and questions that we address on a daily basis. It, it affects any policy that touches on the so-called public good, because the whole notion of public goods uh, has been racialized. So whenever you use the term public, I mean, if you think about public schools, public transportation, public housing, public services, um, you know, uh, even though, you know, when, when President Obama used the phrase, the public option, I got very nervous because, of course, on the one hand, I'd rather we talk about single payer, but, but he, you know, he says public option, and I know the way that people hear public. They hear public and they think of certain people, typically low income and disproportionately of color. It is a trigger word, and, and so I, I feared when he said it that that was the association an awful lot of people would make, and of course it was the association that an awful lot of people made. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. 
By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. One of the hidebound myths in our culture is the Horatio Alger fantasy. You might be born poor, bucko, but America's the land of upward mobility. Anyone with grit and gumption can scramble from the very bottom of the economic ladder all the way to the top. At last, though, this musty myth is being dispelled as everyone from academics to Wall Street protesters are proving that it simply isn't true. Even prominent politicos are catching on. As one said last fall, Movement up into the middle income is actually greater in Europe than it is in America. That's no liberal talking. It's Rick Santorum. The same guy who now says there are no classes in America was at least visiting reality just a few months ago. While GOP leaders still try to dismiss the issue of income inequality, the mobility issue goes to the very core of America's identity. It's too big to deny or ignore. John Bridgeland, a former Bush aide who now heads a policy group called Opportunity Nation, says bluntly that Republicans, quote, will need to talk about a lack of mobility, a lack of access to the American dream. Many recent studies confirm that our country has developed a class stickiness that is alarmingly dangerous to our social unity. The Pew Research Report finds that about 62% of Americans born on the top rungs of the economic ladder stay there as adults and 65% born on the bottom rungs remain stuck there for life. In a ranking of nine affluent countries, Canada was tops in upward mobility, and the U.S. was last. This is Jim Hightower saying, America won't offer a true opportunity for upward mobility unless we restore a unity of purpose among all of our people. And we can't achieve that as long as top corporate and governmental leaders deliberately widen the chasm separating the rich from the rest of us. GOP base dog whistle. So, like, obviously, obviously, when Donald Trump went on his giant birth certificate crusade, when he went on his birth certificate crusade, what that was was a dog whistle to the racist base of the Republican Party. That's what it was. You know, these days, in today's world, uh, GOP candidates just can't come out and say, they can't just come out and say, man, I hate that a black guy's president. They can't do that. They can't do that. So what they do is they question whether the black guy was born in America. 
That's what they do. And it's it's the same thing, uh, say, when Newt Gingrich or Rick Santorum does something like attack food stamps. Uh, when he says Barack Obama is the food stamp president. Uh, when Newt Gingrich says that black kids should go to work cleaning schools. It's what it is. It is it's it's a subtle it's a subtle racism. It's not really, some of it's not that subtle, really, but it's, it's a more subtle form of racism. It's it's Ronald Reagan saying welfare queens kind of stuff. So so Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney actually had one of those moments uh yesterday and you probably heard it uh but let's play the clip from cnn this last wednesday morning by the way i'm in this race because i care about americans i'm not concerned about the very poor we have a safety net there if it needs repair i'll fix it i'm not concerned about the very rich they're doing just fine i'm concerned about the very heart of america that the 90 95 percent of americans who right now are struggling and i'll continue to take that message across the nation all right. I, I know I said last question, but I got to ask you. you. You just said I'm not concerned about the very poor because they have a safety net, and I think there are lots of very poor Americans who are, are struggling who would say that sounds odd. Can you explain that? Well, you had to f- finish the sentence, uh, Soledad. I said I'm not concerned about the very poor that have a safety net, but if it has holes in it, I will repair them. Got it. Okay. Uh, the the challenge right now, we 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 will hear from the Democrat Democrat Party, the plight of the poor. And, and there's no question, it, it's not good being poor, and we have a safety net to help those that are very poor. All right, so Mitt Romney, Mittens, is apparently not concerned with the very poor. Well, that's shocking, isn't it? I, I gotta tell you, I am shocked and surprised and appalled. I, I would have thought that a man who's not just, he's not just in the top 1%, but the top 0.02%, I would have thought that he would be concerned with the very poor. Considered, considering how Mitt has claimed that he's worked on the real streets of America. But, but again, 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 let's, let's examine, I wanna examine the dog whistle here, because there is actually a dog whistle in what Mitt just said. So, so what Mitt's doing right now what he's doing there is he is trying to flip the 99% rhetoric, which is, has been very effective, which has changed the national conversation. What Mitt's trying to do is to flip the 99% rhetoric and turn it into the 90% rhetoric. And, and again, what this is, people, is it's a dog whistle. It's a dog whistle to those who hate Poor people. And there are a lot of people who hate poor people in this country. Um, and most of them are Republicans. <laughs> it's the truth. So what, what Mitt's saying here, what Mitt is saying is that if you're a, an American citizen who's struggling, and a lot of us are, if you're an American who's struggling, and a lot of and a lot of Americans are, but you are not covered in the safety net right now, uh, uh, if you're not covered, you're not getting any type of assistance. If you are that person, if you are that person, he's asking, he's asking those people, hey, Hey, don't you just hate those people on food stamps? Huh? Don't you? Don't you? Don't you hate the people who get Medicaid, who get, who get free healthcare? Don't you hate them? I mean, you, you don't get any help. You don't get any help. But these people, these people over there, the, the very poor, the very poor, they're getting all these wonderful benefits. They're doing fine. They're doing great. They're lucky. They get Food stamps. These people get food stamps. That you don't get many food stamps, but they do. They're so lucky. We have this great safety net for them, but you, you get nothing. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. That, my dear friends, that is class war right there. 
That is the 1% telling the middle 94% or so. It's the 1% telling the middle 94% to hate the bottom 5%. And it's subtle. And again, like, like, the, like the bottom 5% have so much power in this country. Like the bottom 5% have any influence at all in this country. But, but, but it, it's subtle, but it is very, it's very, it's very much there. And it's definitely, is no matter what people are saying, uh, people calling it that it was a gaffe that Mitt gave, it's not a gaffe. Mitt has said the same thing in another speech, uh, a couple weeks ago. So this is not like a one-time oopsie-daisy thing that was a mistake. It's not. It's, it's, it's Mitt's way. It's Mitt's way of still embracing the GOP's general hatred for the poor while trying not to seem too out of touch for those in the middle who are clearly hurting financially. And again, and again, let's talk about this. The safety net in the United States, come on, everybody, you guys know this. It's not that good. We're the richest country in the nation, and we have one of the worst safety nets of all developed nations. It's not that good, and as we talk about all the damn time, it is getting worse by the day. As we cut, as we cut, as we cut, as we embrace the wonderful hand of austerity. And, and again, Mitt Romney, if Mitt Romney has his way, if he has his way, we would cut even more. We would cut even more under Mitt Romney because we've talked before on the show on uh, about how Mitt Romney's tax plan that he has that uh, on under his tax plan, Mitt himself would receive a four million dollar tax cut. Seriously, that's Mitt's plan. While while half of Americans would actually see their taxes go up s- slightly, and that most of that is because you know the majority of Romney's wealth comes from capital gains and dividends, which he doesn't want to tax at all. So so Thick Progress actually has a report, uh, a more in depth report on Mick, on some of Mitt's financial plans and on what pr- programs he'd like to cut. And I'm going to read a couple things here because uh, it does it does actually speak into. You know, his opinion on the very poor and the wonderful safety net that we have. So according to Think Progress, uh, quote, under, under Mitt's plans, quote, Medicaid would be cut by $153 billion by 2016. The food stamp program would have to, have to throw 10 million low-income people off the rolls. And a key program supporting poor children's health would face cumulative cuts of $946 billion through 2021. Right there, Mitt, Mitt, Mitt Romney's saying what he'd do. And what Mitt Romney would do is shred the existing social safety net that's already in bad shape. He would shred the safety net. You know why? You know why? Because according to Mitt Romney, the poor have it too good. The bottom 5% have it too good. The lucky, the lucky food stamp people. The lucky food stamp people. Let's throw 10 million people off of food stamps. Cause, cause they, they're too lucky. They don't need to eat. They don't need to eat. Why, why, why do poor people need to eat? They don't. It's a dog whistle. Let's try something here. Let's try something. If you don't mind, my dear, my dear friends. Let's try for a moment to go into the mind of your average GOP 
base voter ghoul for a second. You all know that that's what I call them. They're base voter ghouls. So, so let's, let's, let's try to go into the mind of a, of a GOP base voter ghoul here. So in order to do that, uh, I'm just going to say for, for those listening to my show, uh, what you're going to have to do, uh, take your IQ right now, your, your present IQ, and cut it in half. <laughs> okay? Pretend you're half as dumb as you actually, I'm not saying you're dumb, but take your intelligence, cut it in half, alright? Then take that, take that, and then cut it in half again, alright? So, 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 okay, what, what you are, so you're, you're an angry, you're a stupid GOP base voter, you're, an, you're, you're a person who, who when, uh, when, uh, when people talk about, uh, execute, executing people in Texas, you cheer! You cheer! You're someone who, who, when you hear that somebody doesn't have health care, you scream, let him die! Let him die! You are an ignorant ghoul, okay? Are you there? Are you, you got your ghoul, your, your ghoul brain on? Okay, so, so we're all ghouls here at the moment. So, pretending you're a ghoul, when Mitt Romney says, I'm not concerned with the very poor, what do you think the color of the skin is? of the, quote, very poor person that pops into the GOP base voter ghoul's mind. What color is their skin? Again, it's not as, as obvious and glaring as Newt saying food stamp president, but make, make no mistake, my friends, it is a big, it is a big dog whistle. Hey, Jay, this is Tony from uh, southern New Jersey, basically in the Philadelphia area. And uh, I'm a, you know, recently started listening a couple months ago after a colleague in work got me interested. Um, anyway, I'm an English teacher, and uh, I find that uh, often with my students, um, especially the younger the students, the more often this happens, is that, you know, you'll find that they have sort of weird anti-gay views from their parents. Um, and they'll use the whole choice argument, well, uh, you know, you choose to be gay, you choose to be transsexual, you choose to be all these sorts of things. And, you know, one of the callers on the previous show, they mentioned this whole thing about turning in that question around on people. I guess the guy turns it around on his colleagues. Well, I actually use the question when, when students say, oh, you, you're choosing to be gay, you're choosing to be this or that. I then turn it around to them and I ask them, okay, when was your choice? When did you make the choice to be straight? I'm assuming you're straight, I'm, uh, so when was your choice? And there's usually this look of horror on their face that's often pretty funny, and it gets a little laugh out of everybody else. And I, it may be bullying on my part, but it is sort of the time when uh, it may be necessary to, to sort of bully people into being of the right mind. And I get, you know, I'll usually follow it up with something, some sort of like moralistic thing like that, that they, they'll, they'll be embarrassed 10 years from now with the sort of views that they hold about gay people and things like that. But um, I just I just wanted to sort of tag on to what, to what the uh, one of the other callers said last show about turning that question back on, on people. And I do that on, to my students, and it's, it's pretty funny. Um, anyway, I love the show. Looking forward to hearing more. Bye. Hello, Jay. This is Max calling in from the People's Republic of Davis. I uh, just wanted to second whoever recommended the podcast Smiley and West. 
as far as you know, getting more diverse sources on the show. And just to be frank, this is just one of the best podcasts I've ever heard. So yeah, Tavis Smiley and uh, Dr. Cornell West, it really just doesn't get any better than that. So I'd love to hear them in the lineup and the already great lineup. And thanks for doing what you do. Take it easy. Bye. Hi, Jay. My name's Adrian, and I'm from College Station, Texas. I just listened to your show, I think it was number 571, on the President's State of the Union. And you ended the show with this great discussion or great uh, teaching moment about rhetoric and how to present um, uh, conversations, I guess, on activist movements and doing better. And, and you ended it by saying that you hoped you hadn't offended everybody. And I am kind of calling, I guess, to respond to that. I thought it was a great moment. I'm glad you're bringing up the conversation. I think you can tell I'm about to criticize a little here. I just want to point out that you used words like wrong when you were referring to people's reaction to the It Gets Better campaign, uh, GWT members that that, uh, criticized it, I guess, and you used words like wrong. And I just want to point out that when you're talking to an audience that has already been marginalized and already been told that their feelings don't matter and their response isn't important and been talked over, it's hard to hear those things. I'm a GLBT activist, and I think what I wanted is perhaps a little bit less of harsh language, but also it could have been a teaching moment for you, too. You could have stopped and said, wait, wait. This is a person in the community, not just an ally, but a person in the community that's having a response. They're having a response for a reason, for a good logical or emotional reason. Let me not get frustrated and let me listen to what they're saying instead. Because they have a good point. We have a good point when we say, it shouldn't be that I have to wait for things to get better. It shouldn't be that I have to wait to get out of high school when I feel suicidal Part of it should be, it gets better right now because we make it better. And no matter the rhetoric of how I present that to you, because yes, of course, there should be people that give those wins. We should be born positive, right? But it could have been a teaching moment on the other side, too. I hope that made sense. I'm sorry for rambling. I love the show. I'll continue to listen. Thank you so much for doing the service you do. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So over the past few episodes, uh, there's been a little bit of a dialogue going on concerning LGBT rights and a variety of uh, connected topics. And uh, I thought that in the last episode, I said it would probably be the last time I'd touch on it unless something major came up that uh, needed to be talked about. And it has. So I, I'm going to touch on that in just a moment, but quickly respond to Adrienne, the voicemail we just heard, saying that the teachable moment that started all of this should have gone both ways. And and I just want to say that that may have not been made clear as another victim of the fact of trying to explain a really nuanced, in-depth, long conversation in, in the span of just a few minutes. Uh, but that, that 
teachable moment definitely went both ways. You know, the, my initial frustration was born out of uh, misunderstanding, which was the realization about the importance of communicating exactly what you mean and not leaving room for misunderstanding. But then as soon as that frustration went away, then the, the learning went in the other direction. And I absolutely was finding out, uh, you know, everything I didn't know about that perspective and was super happy to have it, which is why I thought it was really important to then share that on the show. So that's how that went down. A- absolutely no disagreement to anything Adrian said. And okay, so, so this came up. Um, again, my friend Lauren uh, in, informed me about and, – and she she sent in an email like, hey, just to confuse you further, <laughs> she sent me a link to an article talking about kind of a fringe movement in, in the um, LGBT community which is opposed to equality. So I'll link this article in the show notes and the guy I'm, I'm referring to is named uh, Ryan Conrad. And so he's uh, he's the one referred to in this article, and he he edited a couple of anthology books. One's called Against Equality: Don't Ask to Fight Their Wars, and the other is Against Equality: Queer Critiques of Gay Marriage. And so I I, I agree with about twenty percent of his twenty five percent of his premise, and um, and 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 then really you know veer off. I'm going to try to explain where they're coming from. The idea is that. You know, so Canada has has legalized gay marriage, and he says uh, that Canada moved fast, maybe too fast, and and says that in establishing legal equality for same sex marriage, he thinks that Canada missed an opportunity to debate the merits of marriage and ask why people who are married should enjoy privileges that are denied those who remain single or who choose to form other kinds of relationships, and so when you're like, oh. Like yeah, that's no, that is a good point. Like maybe we're kind of missing the point when you focus too much on marriage equality. You're you're kind of you're fighting the battle on these kind of like conservative, heteronormative grounds. It's you know the very old school, traditional you know gay people trying to become a part of institutions that are these like very old school, traditional things. And and then and same with the military. So where he totally loses me is to say that he's actually opposed to equality, and and I, I'm very open to the idea that I'm misunderstanding uh, his perspective on it. That he literally wants to remain not allowed to marry or not allowed to uh, to join the military. Like I could be misunderstanding that. It's it's how it comes across. But if his point is just that that's not the battle to fight, and you know, he so the article goes on and talks about how you know we should be fighting the battle in in terms of questioning these old archetypes and and suggesting that maybe rather than changing the laws to allow same sex couples to be allowed the same rights as heterosexual couples, maybe we should change the laws to incorporate. This you know new wave of people who want nothing to do with marriage, but just because they don't want to be married doesn't mean they should be denied certain rights. And so again, from that perspective, I love it. But then he again he kind of loses me. So half the article is written like an article, and half of it is written like uh, like an interview. And so he loses me when he starts talking <laughs> because so he's asked the question and says quote. 
Some people see the fight for marriage equality as a very basic sign of respect for the relationships of gay and lesbian people. Why isn't this just a simple matter of same-sex couples being treated the same way opposite-sex couples are? And so Ryan Conrad responds, Oh, honey, if you need the church and state to tell you that you're worth it, you've got more self-esteem issues than your flagrant wedding ceremony is going to compensate for. I mean, seriously, do we have to stoop to straight people's level? Why should we be retrofitting our erotic and emotional lives to fit within the confines and shackles of the hetero world? How about straight folks adjust their laws to better match the varied ways we queers make family and not the other way around? Fuck being equal. Let's use our queerest gift, creativity, and pave the way to a future that's not just equal, but better. And so again, I want to be on his side, and I, I like kind of what he's driving at, but he's such a dick about it that I, I, I have to imagine that I'm not the only one who feels kind of repulsed by the sentiment based almost purely on the messenger. Anyway, it's a really interesting alternative perspective on, on the whole issue that in a lot of ways I want to agree with and in a lot of ways I probably do agree with and maybe they just need uh, – well, as, as someone mentioned in, in the comments of this article, these are two different arguments. You don't have to be against equality to also be in favor of changing the status quo of rights that are bestowed upon various, you know, couples or, or sets of relationships, and and that's that's what I think. It's it's that they're separate arguments to be made, and and you shouldn't be opposed to equality in the current status quo simply because you would also like to change the status quo. But I will actually say this in his defense because he, part of his argument for why he thinks it is wrong-headed to campaign for marriage equality is that he says something that I say, which is that energy for advocacy is limited. And so he says that these energies are being wasted on campaigning for equal marriage when what would be more effective and probably more in line with the way the future is moving and, and that people are moving more and more away. I mean, not just gay people, but all young people are uh, less likely to be married for a longer amount of time. That's, that's the way society is moving. And so he's saying that it, it's a better use of our time and resources to advocate for changing these laws in a fundamental way so that they more accurately reflect society rather than shoehorning in same-sex couples into the old, stale system. So I actually – I like where he's coming from in a lot of ways. I just wish he wasn't a dick about it. Anyways, like I said, really interesting perspective. If, if you have reactions to that, I would love to hear them. I, I, think, I, I think I basically made all of my points already, but I would, I'd love to hear uh, what you guys think. And so until then, I just want to thank a couple of members before I go. Elizabeth L. signed up for a Socialist Monthly membership back on July 23rd, and Charlie J. signed up for a Leftist Yearly membership back on July 7th. So huge uh, thanks to uh, Charlie and then to Elizabeth for going a little bit above and beyond, and to all the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bye, bye.